Uh, we want to hear the heart of God today, right? We want to hear the heart of God, and we want to be encouraged. We want to leave here with a word of encouragement, a word of exhortation, but we want to hear from God. And that's really what we do every every time we come here, is to simply posture ourselves in the reading of the word in such a way that we're hearing the heart of God in his word, and that we're exposed to the totality of Scripture. There are those of you here who will say, Hey, it's actually me reading through the totality of Scripture that I began to realize that a lot of stuff that what people said about what the Bible said isn't what the Bible says. And in me reading the whole Bible through this journey, um, I'm starting to realize that a lot of what was imposed on me was not imposed. And a lot of things that maybe were quoted in the Scriptures were actually misinterpreted because they weren't read within the context of the grander picture, the grander narrative of the text. And so that's what I pray for, that that, that you would revisit the word, that you would revisit the word. And so we're going to revisit the word, but this time we're going to do it with the help of the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to ask the Lord to just speak to us in this time as we engage in his word. Father, I ask today, Lord, as we come before you, Lord, we're asking these three questions, God, what are you revealing concerning yourself? What are you revealing concerning people? And what are you revealing concerning me? Father, we're tuning our spirit to yours, Lord. Lord. So speak to us, Lord. We pray that your spirit would testify to our spirit and, Lord, that we would find what we need for the day. Give us our daily bread today, Lord. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Esther chapter 5. Let's get right to it. Esther chapter 5. And it says this. Now it happened on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace across from the king's house while the king sat on his royal throne in the royal house, facing the entrance of the house. So it was. When the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court that she found favor in his sight, and the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand, then Esther went near and touched the top of the scepter. And the king said to her, "'What do you wish, Queen Esther?' What is your request? It shall be given to you up to half the kingdom. So Esther answered, If it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to the banquet that I have prepared for him. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, or Haman quickly, that he may do as Esther has said. So the king and Haman went to the banquet that Esther had prepared. At the banquet of wine, the king said to Esther, What is your petition? It shall be granted to you. What is your request? Up to half the kingdom, it shall be done. Then Esther answered and said, My petition and request is this. If I have favor, found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, then let the king and Haman come to the banquet which I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king said. Hmm. So Haman went out that day joyful and with a glad heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate and that he did not stand or tremble before him, he was filled with indignation against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and called for his friends and his wife Zeresh. Then Haman told them of his great riches, the multitude of his children, everything in which the king had promoted him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and servants of the king. Moreover, Haman said, besides, Queen Esther invited no one but me to come in with the king to the banquet that she prepared, and tomorrow I am again invited by her along with the king, yet all this avails me nothing, as long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. 
Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let the gallows be made, fifty cubits high, and in the morning suggest to the king that Mordecai be hanged on it. Then go merrily with the king to the banquet. And the thing pleased Haman, so so he had the gallows made. That night, the king could not sleep. So one was commanded to bring the book of records of the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written that Mordecai had told Bekthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, the doorkeepers who had sought to lay hands on King Azuris. Then the king said, What honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's servants who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. So the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer gate of the king's palace to suggest that the king hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's servant said to him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king asked him, What shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought in his heart, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman answered the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let the royal robe be brought, which the king has worn, and a horse on which the king has ridden, which has a royal crest placed on its head. And let this robe and horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes, that he may array the man whom the king delights to honor. Then parade him on horseback through the city square and proclaim before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robe and the horse as you have suggested, and do so for Mordecai the Jew, who sits within the king's gate. Leave nothing undone of all that you have spoken. So Haman took the robe and the horse, arrayed Mordecai, and led him on horseback through the city square and proclaimed before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Afterward, Mordecai went back to the king's gate. But Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. When Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him, his wise men and his wife said to him, If Mordecai, before, you, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him, but will surely fall before him. While they were sitting with him, the king's eunuchs came and hastened to bring Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther, and on the second day at the banquet wine, at the banquet of wine, the king again said to Esther, What is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Up to half the kingdom? It shall be done. Then Queen Esther answered and said, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me at my petition and at my people, and my people at my request. For we have been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Had we been told, had we been sold as male and female slaves, I would have held my tongue, although the enemy could never compensate for the king's loss. So King Ahasuerus answered and said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he? Who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing? 
And Esther said, the adversary, the enemy is the wicked Haman. So Haman was terrified before the king and queen. Then the king arose in his wrath from the banquet of wine and went into the palace garden. But Haman stood before Queen Esther, pleading for his life, for he saw that evil was determined against him by the king. When the king returned from the palace, from the garden, sorry, to the to the place of the banquet of wine, Haman had fallen across the couch where Esther was. Then the king said, Will he also assault the queen while I am in the house? As the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Now Harbanah, one of the eunuchs, either side the eunuchs, said to the king, Look the gallows, fifty cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on the king's behalf, is standing at the house of Haman. Then the king said, Hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's wrath was subdued. On that day, King Azarias gave Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told her he was related to her. So the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed Mordecai over the house of Haman. Now Esther spoke again to the king, fell down at his feet, and implored him with tears to counteract the evil that Haman the Agagite and the scheme which he had devised against the Jews. And the king held out the golden scepter toward Esther. So Esther arose and stood before the king and said, If it pleases the king, and if I found favor in your sight, and the thing seems right to the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite which he wrote to annihilate the Jews who are in the, all the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the evil that will come to my people? Or how can I endure to see the destruction of my countrymen? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, Indeed, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have, made, they have hanged him in the gallows because he tried to lay his hand on the Jews. You yourselves... Write a decree concerning the Jews, as you please, in the king's name, and seal it with the king's signet. For whatever is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's signet ring, no one can revoke. So the king's scribes were called at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded to the Jews, the satraps, the governors, and the princes of the provinces from India to Ethiopia. 127 provinces in all, to every province in its own script, to every people in their own language, and to the Jews in their own script and language. And he wrote in the name of Isaias, sealed it with the king's signet ring, and sent letters by couriers on horseback, riding on royal horses, bred from swift steeds. By these letters, the king permitted the Jews who were in every city to gather together and protect their lives, to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the forces of any people or province that would assault them, both little children and women, and to plunder their possessions. On one day in all the provinces of King Azarias, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, 
a copy of the document will be issued as a decree in every province and published for all people so that the Jews would be ready that on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. Hmm. The couriers who rode the royal horses went out and hastened and pressed on by the king's command. And the decree was issued in Shushan, the citadel. So Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel of blue and white, with a great crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple, and the city of Shushan rejoiced and was glad. The Jews had light and gladness, joy and honor, and in every province and city, wherever the king's command and decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a holiday. Then many of the people of the land became Jews, because fear of the Jews fell upon them. Now in the twelfth month, that is, the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day, the time came for the king's command and his decree to be executed. On the day that the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, the opposite occurred. And the Jews themselves overpowered those who hated them. Goodness gracious. The Jews gathered together in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Azarias to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could withstand them because fear of them fell upon all the people and all the officials of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and all those doing the king's work helped the Jews because the fear of Mordecai fell upon them. For Mordecai was great in the king's palace, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For this man, Mordecai, became increasingly prominent. Thus the Jews defeated all their enemies, and the stroke of the sword, the slaughter and destruction, and did what they pleased with those who hated them. And in Shushan, the citadel, the Jews killed and destroyed the 500 men. Also, Parshandatha, Dalphon, Aspatha, sorry. Poratha, Adaliah, Eraditha, Parmashta, Arisai, Ardai, Vajazatha, and ten sons of Haman, the sons of Hamaditha, the enemy of the Jews, they killed, and they did not lay a hand on the plunder. On that day, the number of those who killed Shushan, the citadel, were brought to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men in Shushan, the citadel. And the ten sons of Haman. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your petition? It shall be granted to you. Or, what is your further request? It shall be done. Then Esther said, If it pleases the king, let it be granted to the Jews who are in Shushan to do again according tomorrow according to today's decree, and let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. The decree was issued in Shushan, and they hanged Haman's ten sons. And the Jews who were in Shushan gathered together again on the 14th day of the month of Adar and killed 300 men at Shushan, but they did not lay a hand on the plunder. The remainder of the Jews in the king's provinces gathered together and protected their lives and had rest from their enemies and killed 75,000 of their enemies but they did not lay a hand on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar. And the 14th day of the month, they rested 
and made it a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Shushan assembled together on the 13th day, as well as on the 14th and on the 15th of the month they rested, and made it a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who dwelt on the unwalled town celebrated the 14th day of the month of Adar with gladness and feasting as a holiday and for sending presents to one another. Mordecai, <clears throat> sorry. Whoops. My apologies. Hmm. Verse 20, and Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters to all the Jews near and far who were in the provinces of King Azarias, to establish among them that they should celebrate yearly the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar, as the days on which the Jews had rest from their enemies, as a month which was turned from sorrow to joy for them, and from mourning to a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and joy, and sending presents to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted the custom which they had begun, and Mordecai had written to them. Because Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to annihilate them and had cast per, that is, the lot, to consume them and destroy them. But when Esther became, sorry, when Esther came before the king, he commanded by letter that this wicked plot, which Haman had devised against the Jews, should return on his own head, and that his sons should be hanged in the gallows. Hmm. So they called the days of Purim after the name Pur. Therefore, because of all the words of this letter that they had seen concerning this matter and what had happened to them, the Jews established and imposed it upon themselves and their descendants and all who would join them that, that without fail, they should celebrate these two days every year according to the written instructions and according to the prescribed time, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, every family, every province, and every city, that the days of Purim should not fail to be observed among the Jews, and that the memory of them should not perish among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, with Mordecai, the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm this second letter about Purim. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews, to 127 provinces of the kingdoms of Azarias, with the words of peace and truth to confirm these days of Purim at their appointed times, as Mordecai, the Jew, and Queen Esther had prescribed them and as they had decreed for themselves and their descendants concerning the matters of their fasting and lamenting. So the decree of Esther confirmed these matters of Purim, and it was written in the book. And King Azarius imposed tribute on the land and on the islands of the sea. Now all the acts of his power and his might and the account of his greatness, of the greatness of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai, the Jew, was second to King Ahasuerus and was great among the Jews and well-received by the multitude of his brethren, seeking the good of his people and speaking peace to all his countrymen. The word of God. The word of the living God. 
First, we'll start off by saying congratulations. We just finished reading through the book of Esther, and I'm glad we were able to get through it, um, given I will be taking a few days off, and I'm glad that we've been given the privilege to be able to engage with this word in this way. Um, as I told you before, Esther is one of those books where you read it and, you know, there's just so, so much that brews up in you in this text, um, so much that awakens in you. Um, this text should have your bones on fire. <laughs> this text should have your bones shaking in every sense of the term, in every sense of the word, uh, because this text really speaks into how God moves without God being explicitly spoken about. Let me say that one more time. The book of Esther is unique in the sense that God isn't explicitly mentioned at all in this book. If you've read it, you can see there is no mention of God. There is no mention of a prayer to God. There is no mention of um, a prophetic revelation. There is no mention of God speaking specifically or directly to anyone in this text. There's no mention of it. Um, if you were to read this text in its own little, you know, in its just just independent of the rest of the scripture, you would find it to be maybe a text of histor of with, with with I guess historical implications. Uh, you would see it as a historical book. Um, you'll see it as a narrative um, about what had transpired with a particular group of people in a particular region. And yet, because we don't see an explicit, um, an explicit, uh, you know, utterance or an explicit depiction or an explicit description of God in the text. What we notice, though, in the text is there's a movement that's happening in the text that can only be orchestrated by either incredible improbabilities or by divine intelligence, divine orchestration. That is, that I, what I love about reading Esther, of the many things that I love about Esther, because I believe Esther is one of the most savage goons in the scripture. There's the boldness of Esther. There, you know, we, we speak about this, 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 this woman, Esther, and the boldness that she had is a boldness that you rarely find even among men in the scriptures. And yet Esther has this boldness about her. And I love it. I love it. I love it. I love that part of the text. But when I read it and I'm looking at this text and I'm looking at the scripture, I find it uh, peculiar how, first of all, this fits, even without an explicit, um, without an explicit reference to God, somehow this book fits. Why does this book fit? The book fits, and I mentioned this yesterday, the book fits because it is a depiction of God's people. The book fits because we're talking about the children of Israel here. 
who they describe as the Jews. Watch this now. We're talking about a chosen people. But now we're talking also about a chosen people who have been distant from God. How do we know that? Because we know that because of the fact that they are in captivity. The reason why they're in captivity is because the law that undergirded them and kept them in power was the law that they disobeyed. And because they disobeyed it, they fell from God's grace. And in falling from God's grace, they were taken by the Babylonians, who now fell subject to the Persians. And so now they find themselves under Persian Babylonian captivity as a result of the distance that they've created from God. We know this to be true because if you read in Ezra Nehemiah, the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah, both really being one book, is what we see is a remnant of a resurgence of revival. We see the children of Israel leaving Babylon, leaving Persia, and going back to Jerusalem. And upon their return to Jerusalem, returning back to the law, that is the law that was given to them. And, and, and so we see a resurgence, a rebuilding of the temple, a rebuilding of the city. We see a remnant. We see a, uh, an impetus. We see a catalyst. We see a movement of revival. And so you see it happening in Jerusalem. But we're not in Jerusalem. We're in Shushan. And in Shushan... There is no temple. In Shushan, there is no priest. In Shushan, there's just Persians. And there are Chaldeans. And there are Babylonians. And there are Canaanites. Pagans. And now you find the Jews held on to the, their cultural identity in this text. And yet, even though they've been distant from God, there's a preservation that we can observe in this text for this group of people because they have been chosen by God. It's an interesting thing when we talk about this whole principle of being chosen. And being chosen by God has very little, if not nothing, to do with who you are. In this case, it had a great deal to do with where they came from. But they were chosen. And because they were chosen, their being chosen was without condition. When God chooses you, He chooses you without condition. When God chooses you, he chooses you not because you read the Bible, not because, man, you go to church on Sunday, every Sunday, not because, man, you've just, you, you spend a lot of time in Bible study. He chooses you not because you got it all together. He chooses you not because, you know, you're doing the best that you can to be the best person that you can be. He chose you before the foundation of the world. Did you hear me? He chose you before the foundation of the world. 
Just sit on that for a moment. That when you have been chosen by God, it has nothing to do with your performance. Nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with how much you read the Bible and how many Bible studies you go to and how much you're trying to be the best person that you can be. <laughs> Understand this. The best person that you can be falls profoundly short of the glory of God. And yet, he chose you before the foundation of the world. That's a paradigm shift because now you don't live out of performance. You live out of identity. That's the problem for many of us, for many believers. We live out, for many of us, at least in church, we live out of performance. Like we're always performing, 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 performing. And yet, if we notice in this text, is you've got a people who by every measure have fallen profoundly short of the glory of God. We find a people who are subject to captivity because of their sin, because of their disobedience, because of their intransigence to their own way. And yet even though they've been stuck in their own way, doing their own thing, as much as we find that God isn't here, God is all over the place. God is bleeding all over this text. God is, he's pouring out all over the book of Esther, even though God's name is never mentioned. Because you don't need to see God and to see an explicit um, um, reflection of God or an explicit declaration of God for God to not be at work and for God to not be present. One part of what we can learn from the book of Esther is that you don't need God to be mentioned or to be noticed for God to be moving. Let me say that one more time. You don't need God to be mentioned or to be noticed in order for God to be moving. And often for many of us, we're waiting to get some kind of explicit declaration of God when God is moving in all things. It's in Him all things consist. It's in Him all things consist. This is for the person here, just a word of encouragement. For there's a person here right now who finds himself in a state of captivity. There's a person here who finds himself in a place of abasement. There's a person here who finds themselves in a place of profound brokenness, and yet you, you're looking for God and you're seeking God and you cannot see God. Can I just tell you something real quick? Just because you don't see God doesn't mean he's not there. And just because you don't hear from him doesn't mean he's not speaking. God is always there. He says he'll never leave you, nor will he forsake you. He is always there. And even when we can't see how God is moving, guess what? God is moving. He's always moving. He's moving even when he's not being spoken about. He's moving when, when he's not being uttered. He's moving even when we're not noticing. He's moving. God is always moving. We live lives of divine orchestration. His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God is always moving. I read this text and 
all I see is no mention of God and yet all manifestation of God. Let this be a lesson to all of you who, when we look at the world and we look at what has transpired and what is going on in the world, let this be a declaration to you that even when things don't seem like they're going right, even when things seem like they're upside down, even when things don't seem like they're going the way they ought to go, even when it's dark and you're like, God, where are you? Even when you don't notice God and even when you don't hear God, God is there. He's always there. And even when you look at history and everything that transpires, all the evil that you see in the world, everything that is happening, do not forget this. He is sovereign. He is king. He is in control. God has it all under control. We don't know how it's going to go, but God already knows how it's going to end. Ah, and even if I can't hear him, he's still speaking. Even if I can't hear him, he's still speaking. He's still moving. He's still, he's still talking. And in a story that we read here, we see God moving. He's moving in unlikely ways. It's about time, family, that when you start experiencing coincidences in your life, that you start noticing God moving through it. When you start seeing a series of improbabilities transpiring in your life, that you start asking, God, what are you doing? It's about time that we start looking at some things in our lives and realizing we should have never been here and this should have never happened and I should have never found myself in this place. And yet God is actually moving through it because that was not by my might, not by my power, not by my ability, not by my capacity. This was all God at the end of the day. And there's some people here who have experienced promotions in your life and you know it had nothing to do with you. And there's some people in here who have experienced incredible blessing in your life and know that it has nothing to do with you. It's about time we take these coincidences and start giving God credit for them. It's about time we start giving God credit for the things that are unlikely. What I see in the book of Esther is an unlikely series of events a string of unlikely occurrences all happening, a string of unlikely things to transpire. Since when? Think about this for a minute, family. Since when? I'm just in reflection, y'all. It's not Bible study. We'll say Bible study for another day. But since when did a captive minority get into the position of being queen? How does that happen? How sway? Since when did the captive in Persia get elevated? That's what we just read here, Mordecai. Get elevated to be second in command without background, without um, connections, minority. Since when? How does that happen? How sway? Since when does someone plot against you and against your family and against your people and against your generation 
And since when, in a matter of moment, everything gets turned around. What the book of Esther is about is the switch up. That those who are in high position have been demoted and killed. And those who have low position have been promoted and risen. How? How does that happen? How does it happen that we look at this text and for all intents and purposes, uh, Azurus, the Persian king, is a man who's, he's, he's kind of, he's, he's sort of the puppet to the story rather than the manipulator of the story. There are two families in battle here wrestling. There's a war happening, and this institution is providing an arena for the war that is happening. We see the, we see the war of the Agagites, that's Mordecai's family, who are the descendants of the Canaanites. We see the Canaanites at war with the Jews. Somehow the Canaanites find themselves in position, and yet the Jews find themselves in captivity. And yet in this war, the Canaanites are up. The Jews are down. And as the story transpires, we see a switch up where the Canaanites are destroyed and the Jews have been promoted, not by any of their ability or by any of their power or by any of their capacity. Because this, my family, is a series of unlikely events. Can I just sit here for a moment, family? Are y'all catching what I'm saying? Are you catching what I'm saying? There are some folks who need to go back and look at their lives and to look at where they are. Because, oh yeah, it's easy to cry about where we are. It's easy to complain about things not working out the way that we worked out. But when you look at your life, ask yourselves the question, how did I get here? I should have never been where I'm at. And yet I find myself here. I should have never been in this position. And yet I find myself here. This is what this text is telling us and speaking into us is how God takes an unlikely group of people and elevates them without ever being mentioned or ever being spoken about because God will execute his justice through people who may not even take direct notice of him. Mordecai doesn't pray to God. Esther, let's just be real, y'all. I know I'm, we, we celebrate Esther, but for a moment, let's 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 bring let's bring to light the humanity of Esther for a moment. Esther does not look at this point or live like the Jews or like the Hebrews. We don't see this 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 faithful obedience to the law. We don't see that. I don't know if y'all reading what I, what, 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 what I'm reading. I don't know if you're reading what I'm reading. We don't see any evidence of Esther being faithful to the law. And we don't see it for Mordecai either. These people are people who were in captivity, who were raised generations later after generation after generation of people have been distant from God. How can you expect that? What does Esther know? What does Esther know? And yet, there was a distinction about them because the law 
and the lifestyle and the distinctness has been baked into them. It's been baked into their DNA. It's been baked into the DNA of these people. And Esther is different. And Mordecai is different. Mordecai, this Jewish man who has little to no rights, who stands at the king's gates, sends his cousin niece, <laughs> Esther, into the palace. She gets elevated to queen. Then afterward, Haman, who is the man who is the number two, stands there and seeks to be glorified, puts up a stake after Mordecai chooses not to bow down and chooses not to celebrate him and chooses not to honor him, Mordecai now faces a death sentence. Watch this, family. Mordecai faces a death sentence. We, we just read all of it, so I'm just telling you what we read. Mordecai faces a death sentence, and then what happens? He faces a death sentence from Haman. Haman is planning on executing him the next, the next day. Haman puts up he puts up the, the stake. And then what do we see happens next? What happens next is, is that night, the king has a dream. Sorry, the king is sorry. The king is distressed. He wakes up his, the, um, he wake, wakes up the chroniclers who have written the, 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 the history of the city and the history of his rule. And as they read the history of the rule, they remind him of the thing that Mordecai had done that saved his life. And all of a sudden, why is it that on the day that he's about to die, the night, sorry, night before he's about to die, Mordecai, that the king who has the authority now says, hey, we need to celebrate this man. The day that he's supposed to be executed is the day that he's put on a royal horse. And the guy who's his executioner now is the guy who becomes a celebrator by force. Walks him around the city and he's being honored as a man of honor. On the day of his execution was his day of his promotion. And he's honored for that. Pay attention, fam. We're getting somewhere here. The switch up. The switch up. The switch up. The hater became the celebrator. The switch up. <laughs> the switch up. Then afterward, of course, Haman is, is pretty upset about it. Esther sets up this feast. And after she sets up this feast, she then goes in and she says, So, King, you see that dude right there, Haman? That guy who has planned our execution, whom, don't forget, the king had celebrated along with them after writing the decree to kill all the Jews. Now she informs him that she is a Jew and that this man is there to kill her, her people, and her family. And the king, in his drunken stupor, goes, what? Because what Haman was was a manipulator of a drunk king Taking on a position that he never had the right for. Oh, man, I don't have time. I don't have time. And so in his manipulation, took it upon himself to institute a law that wasn't 
the king's will. And now the king goes, wait, what? To kill the Jew? Wait, hold on. My brother, you were just celebrating this not too long ago. You were just partying with me. And now Haman, see this stuff we miss, y'all. And now Haman backs up and goes, wait, wait, wait. Or, or Haman or Haman. He backs up and he goes, wait, 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 wait. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Why? Would he say back up? Hold on, wait, wait, wait. Because again, he manipulated the king into writing a law and writing a royal decree. And the king turns around and says, you wanted to kill my queen and her family and her people? Send him to the gallows. But notice what gallows he sent to. The same one that he set up for Mordecai. Huh. The same stake that was put up to kill and condemn Mordecai is now the same stake that the enemy has been put on. Interesting. And then Mordecai gets given the ring that Haman has. He went from criminal to a royal, from criminal to now among the elite. And he sits down with the king and says, King, here's a problem. There's a little bit of a problem. Stay with me, fam. Ready? Stay with me, fam. Stay with me, fam. <laughs> he says, we got a little bit of a problem, king. See, here's the thing. Is that we, we took care of Haman. But here's the problem. See, you still wrote a law that condemns all of us to death. Pay attention, family. And, and so... Your law can't return to you void. And so there's a law written that condemns us all to death. And so um, what can we do about that law? He says, well, I can't do anything concerning the law because the law is the law and I've already written it. I can't go against my word, king's words. But he said, but here's what I'll give you, though. I'll give you my authority. Write up a law that gets you out of the law that was written to you. Ah, there is a new law. I'm going to give you the seal. I'm going to give you the authority. I'm going to give you my name and use the full breadth and width and power of my authority to do what you need to do to get yourself out. It's a new law. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm giving you the full authority to write up a way out. Again, go back and read it if you missed it. We finished hanging the enemy on it, but we need something else. He says to them in verse, verse 8, in Esther chapter 8, verse 8, he says, you yourselves write a decree concerning the Jews. You yourself write up a letter and issue a decree, and I've given you a seal. <laughs> I've given you a seal. The seal is my name. The seal is my authority. The seal is my power. The seal, whatever you write, it is what it is. 
You see, while you've been condemned by the enemy with the law that was written concerning you, I'm giving you another law. I'm giving you my authority. I'm giving you my name. Ah. <laughs> what a beautiful reminder that is, my family, that we all under the law have been found ourselves subject to condemnation, subject to death, subject to eternal depravity and eternal death. And yet, what does God give you? He gives you his name. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and find safety. They that call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is what we've been given. We've been given the name of Jesus. And I've said this before. And I know, Jason, you probably heard this when we taught, when I taught this in prayer. A lot of us, when we pray, we pray the name of Jesus as if we're talking about Jesus's name. And that's the problem that a lot of people have. The problem that a lot of people have is, is that they sit around arguing about the name of Jesus. Is the name of Jesus with a J? Is it with an H? Is it with a is it with a Y? There's no Y there. There's no J there. They're, they're, they're arguing about Jesus and how it should be mentioned and how it should, how it should be said as if the name of Jesus is confined or stuck by letters and stuck by words. The letters don't matter. The letters don't matter when it comes to the name of Jesus because the word name in the text of Jesus is the onoma of Jesus. The onoma of Jesus is the authority of Jesus. It is the license of Jesus. It is the seal of Jesus. So when we call the name of the Lord, we're speaking into the person of Jesus, that when we are in him, we have his authority and we have his power and we have his capacity and we have his ability. Therefore, now, when I speak in the name of Jesus, I call him Yeshua. Call him Jesus. But what I'm saying is, is I've got authority, that when the enemy condemned me. And when the enemy told me that I was nothing, when the enemy who was the accuser of the brethren came to me, I came to him with the full seal that says that I shall not die, but I shall live and declare the works of the Lord. I've got power because I have the name of Jesus. The destiny has been written because of the name of Jesus. And what this points us to is the power what a, what, a, what, a, what a visceral image of what happens when even though we've been condemned to death, that we can respond with the authority of the name of Jesus. What a power that is, that now, because I have the name of Jesus, I can do like Esther 8 and 8, and I can write a decree concerning me. I can write a decree because the authority has been given to me by the power of the Holy Spirit. You have authority in Jesus' name. You have power in Jesus' name. I love the image of this text. Just the, the, the imagery and the pointing of this text to, to the salvific work of Christ. There are soteriological implications in this text. Because notice that the enemy was defeated. Come on. But the law was still written. See, the enemy has already been defeated. The question now is, what authority do I come with? 
<laughs> yes, the enemy is defeated. Jesus paid it all. But we have the victory in the name of Jesus because we have the authority of Jesus. And here's an image of that when he says, you yourselves write a decree concerning the Jews. You write up what to do next. And you know what they wrote up? They wrote up that now they have the authority to crush the enemy that came to destroy them. They wrote a law that gave them license to crush the enemy. I'm sorry, fam. I know I'm, I'm taking my time. I'm taking my time. But there's some folks that need to hear this today. That for those of you who've been consumed by condemnation, for those of you who've been consumed by guilt, for those of you who've been consumed by strife, for those who've been consumed by I'm not good enough, for those who've been consumed by I don't know if I've got victory over hell, I came to tell you already that the enemy has been defeated. Jesus paid it all. We have the victory to God be the glory. To God be the glory. God has given you the papers. He's given you the seal. That is the seal of the Holy Spirit. For those of you who don't understand how a seal works, a seal was a mark of authority. That when a letter was written, you 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 dropped uh, droplets of, of 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 wax, and afterwards you put the signet ring. That's where the word signature comes from. It comes from the signet ring because the signet ring was the final signature and you would mark it. You would shove that ring into that wax. And once that wax was dried, whatever was, whatever that ring, whatever authority came with that ring, that's the same authority that you have. So therefore, if you have the king's ring, you have the king's authority. You have the king's signet that now when the wax has been dropped on, on the paper, after you write it out, you can put the signet ring on it and know that you've been sealed. That's what the text means when it says that we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. We have the signet of Jesus. And that signet of Jesus gives us the authority to seal anything that has been spoken against us, any word of condemnation that has been spoken against us. We have the victory because God has the authority and now has delegated it to us. That is what the name of Jesus is. It is the delegated authority of God. <laughs> what a what a role that Esther plays in the grand story. What a role that Esther plays in all of this. Because an Esther was far from the temple, far from the law, far from it all. And yet the Lord preserved his people through her sacrifice and through her commitment. May God use us all in the way that he used Esther. May God use us in the way that he used Mordecai. May God switch it up. Switch it up in our families. Switch it up in our cities. Switch it up in our communities. Switch it up. Switch it up all around. Just switch it up. May he bring us from weeping to joy from mourning to dancing, from death to life, may we wake up. May we go from sleep and slumber to 
passion and life. May we rise again. May we live a life of the resurrection. May we walk in boldness and not timidity. May we speak with authority that we've been given. May we walk in the grace that has been given to each and every one of us. May we be like Esther. May we stand high like Mordecai. That even though we are the minorities in our space, even though the world looks at Christians and it doesn't see them as it ought to, and maybe we're not seen as those with authority and those who rule, and yet we rule by a different law. We rule by a different government. We rule under a different king, and yet we have been given authority by our Heavenly Father. So may we, may we walk in that authority. May we be cognizant of the switch up. May we know that everything has been turned around and that what God turned around in Esther, God turned around in our lives. And we can declare to yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Father, I thank you, Lord, for what you've done. And I ask, Lord, that you would, Lord, remind us, Lord, that we have your seal. Lord, that you've already switched it up that you've given us authority by the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. Father, I ask right now that you would, Lord, give us grace today. Give us grace today. Lord, give us the capacity, Lord, to know, Lord, that we've been called by you. Lord, Father, walk with us. Lord, speak to us. Remind us, Lord, that we are not powerless, but we are powerful. Remind us, Lord, that we are not helpless, but we are now helpful. Remind us, Lord, that we, Lord, have the capacity. We have the ability. We have the facility. We've been given all that is needed. For you, Lord, have supplied all our needs according to your riches and glory. So bless us today. Lord, give us healing where we need healing, Father. Give us grace where we need grace. And I ask that in your name we pray. Amen.